In 2003, a 13-year-old girl named Natalie Gilbert won a promotional contest by Toyota, and this was the prize. She got to sing the national anthem at a NBA game. And so she stood up to sing before thousands of people. Something happened. She forgot the words. She panicked and began to say the previous line over and over to see if it would somehow spark something in her memory, but it in fact did not. And so there she stood in front of tens of thousands of people, and she didn't know what to do or what to say. And so she just lowered her head and uh, put her hands up to her face. But what happened next was incredible. The head coach of the Portland Trailblazers, who at that time was Maurice Cheeks, ran over, lifted the microphone back up to Natalie, and began to sing the words that she had forgotten. And as the coach began to sing, she joined in, and so did 15,000-plus fans in the crowd. And so she was able to finish the song successfully so much that she received a standing ovation. She would later say this about the experience. She said, it was like an angel had come and put his arm around my shoulder and helped me get through the most difficult experience I've ever had. What an incredible, encouraging story. Guess what? In a very real way, what we're going to learn today in Romans chapter 8 is that God, in even greater ways, does the same thing for us when we're struggling. And so turn with me to Romans chapter 8 this morning as we continue our series titled, The Greatest Chapter. If you haven't been with us uh, for the last several weeks, or maybe this is your first time, or uh, you've been out traveling a little bit, I cannot encourage you enough to go back and catch up on all the messages in this series. We were talking among our pastors this week, and I will just tell you this personally, this may be the favorite series I've ever taught at Liberty Heights Church. And so we have enjoyed the incredible truths in Romans chapter 8. But just in case you haven't been with us uh, for the past several weeks, we've kind of had a little catchphrase that we've been saying at all of our campuses so that even if you've missed some services, you can still know the theme of Romans chapter 8. And that little catchphrase uh, goes like this. Romans chapter 8 begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. In the middle, the message is no defeat. Let's say that together. It begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And in the middle, no defeat. One more time. It begins with no... It ends with no, and the middle is, and so we're near the middle part of that section where he's describing this message and leaning in and say, hey, here's the good news. No matter how hard life gets, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no defeat for you. First John chapter 1 all the way through the whole book of First John describes us as more than conquerors. But here's the reality. We live in a culture that's conditioned us to think, hey, if you're on the right side of defeat, if you're on the winning side, it's because you're so committed, you're so skilled, you're so gifted, you're so strong and resilient. And if we're not careful, then spiritually speaking, guess what? We'll become to come to a place and say, hey, if I'm going to make it through suffering, it's because all of those adjectives are true of me. And in that scenario... When you're walking through suffering, if you come out stronger on the other side, if you're not careful, you'll be the hero of your story. But make no mistake, whatever spiritual victory happens in our lives, God, not us, is the hero of our story. And Romans chapter 8 is not a detour away from that truth. That is God perfecting us. It is God sustaining us all throughout. It is an on-ramp onto that truth. Now, let me explain here. 
Last week, uh, in verse 18, we begin a section in Romans chapter 8 uh, on suffering. And we taught last week in verses 18 through 25. I was teaching somewhere else, and so I asked Pastor Tyler, I said, hey, how'd it go last week? He said, you'll have to ask them. He said, I'm pretty convinced I hit a home run. <laughs> I said, I'm not convinced, all right? And so he taught last week, and all series did a great job and said, hey, here's how God uses suffering in our life. And here is how we should respond to seasons of suffering if we're going to get the most of what God wants to do in those seasons. But here's the reality. Because you and I are human, there will be seasons that you, in fact, and I, in fact, do not suffer well. We'll complain. We'll throw a fit. We'll tell anybody who will listen. We'll feel like giving up. We'll get distant from God if we're not careful. We'll get bitter from God. And because that is true, that there are times we do not suffer well and get all the benefit out of it that verses 18 through 25 is describing, the good news is what we're going to learn today in verses 26 through 30 is that in those seasons in life, when we are weakened by suffering, the good news is God does what we cannot do. And so when we cry out in the middle, no defeat, it's not because of our strength, it's because of by faith, we proclaim that when in fact we are weak, he is strong. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's incredibly encouraging to know that in the midst of life, hardest seasons, God does what I cannot do so that I get the most out of suffering. So if you think that's good news, would you say amen? All right, let's pick up the text here in Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 26 through 30. Verse 26 starts off and says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Famous verse, verse 28 we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, here's what we're going to do this morning, a little different. Usually we kind of pick the passage we're going to work through. We teach through it verse by verse. But today, I'm going to focus this on the end of that passage and kind of almost work backwards from an understanding uh, point of view. And the reason I want to focus uh, you on the end of this section in Romans chapter 8 is because the entire section, and honestly, all of Romans chapter 8, is centered around the end verse that he lands on in verse 30. And what he's saying in verse 30 is this. Is that the end game of God in your salvation is glorification. The purpose of God saving you is not just so you can go to heaven one day. Listen, if that were the purpose of God saving you, that at the moment you received Jesus Christ, God would have immediately transported you to heaven because the work of salvation would have been completed. But that's not at all actually what happens. We understand that. And so the reality is the purpose of God saving you, what we learn, is he wants to conform you perfectly to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, what we learn in Romans 8 is there's a process involved in that, all right? And so I'm going to walk you through really quickly the process here in Romans chapter 8. All right, here it goes, what we've been learning. In Romans chapter 8, what we understand is that in justification, 
You have a new standing before God. It's not, you know, I'm no longer uh, not guilty. It's guilty but pardoned. We would call that getting saved. And that's the message that's taught in verses 1 through 4 in Romans chapter 8. And then once you receive Christ, you also receive the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. All right, and so in verses 1 through 4, what we learn is you're no longer subject to sin's penalty because you've been pardoned. But in verses 5 through 11, what I understand is once I receive the Spirit inside of me, I'm no longer subject to sin's power over me. That's sanctification. Then at verses 5 through 11, we understand that, but we also realize that's not automatic, is it? And so we taught through verses 12 and 17. He says, hey, if you want to appropriate all that's available to you in the power of the Spirit, verses 5 through 11, then you've got to wage war against your sin, verses 12 through 17. And then what we realized is this, when we got to verse 18, that while all of that is clear and sounds good, when you get into a season of suffering, if it's hard enough and it's long enough, then you can forget all of those things and nothing discourages us more than seasons of suffering. And so that's what he begins starting in verse 18 all the way down through verse 30. That's how this whole chapter fits together. And in verse 30, Paul says this. Everybody who's been justified, verses 1 through 4, who is now free from sin's penalty, everybody who's experienced that, will be glorified. That's where we're free from sin's presence once and for all. Justification, I'm free from sin's penalty. Sanctification, I'm free from sin's power. Glorification, I'm finally and fully free from sin's presence. Praise God. And that's the end game of salvation. The whole reason God saved you it's not just so you can go to heaven, it's to he can glorify you and finally and fully transform you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so the reality is, why are we starting off with that end game? That's why I want you to see this, because everything else flows up to this truth and everything that we'll go forward in flows out of that truth of glorification that God wants to make you just like Jesus Christ. Now, what does that have to do? With verses 26 through 30. Coming off the call to suffer well in verses 18 through 25, verses 26 through 30 is a continuation on the theme of suffering. And verse 26 starts off with likewise. But in verse 26, it approaches it from a different angle. In verses 18 through 25, he says, hey, if you're going to use suffering for your good and God's glory, here's what's required of you, 18 through 25. But starting in verse 26, he says, hey, if suffering is going to be used for your good and God's glory, here's what God is going to do on your behalf when you cannot do it because you're too weak with suffering. Here's how God responds. He says, hey, God is so committed. That on the last day, he presents you whole and complete and perfect in Jesus Christ that he will step in when you fall down. That's how committed God is to making you just like Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's teaching here uh, in verse 30. And I want to share this with you. And nothing, I repeat, nothing will thwart the plan of God to make you just like Jesus. Let me say this loud and clear. Everyone who runs to Jesus will make it home is what he's teaching here. Praise God. And so there's only five little verses. Like, I'm in the intro and I'm already sweating, right? It's going to be a hot one. Five little verses. But do not mistake 
a few verses for a lack of power in these five little verses. And so I want you to see here this morning two truths or two promises for weary travelers who are weakened by suffering. Promise number one is this. The Spirit prays when you can't. If you're going through a season of suffering in your life where you are so weary and you're weak from suffering that you can't even form your thoughts to actually offer up prayer, let me give you a deep theological truth. Here it is. Write this down. God's got you. All right? That's what he's saying in verses 26 and 27. Go back to verse 26 and 27. What does he say? He says, likewise, because you are suffering, that's why likewise is there. He's connecting the suffering that started back in verse 18. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The message paraphrase, which is not a literal paraphrase, but I think it's a good wording that's faithful to the original idea. Here's what it says, those two verses. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting. You ever been there? You ever sing that song or heard that song? He's an on-time God. And as the words or the thoughts come out of your mind and out of your mouth, you're thinking, but I'm not totally convinced that his watch isn't broken right now. You know what I'm talking about? And so it says, meanwhile, the moment we get tired of waiting, God's spirit is right alongside helping us along. Listen to this, verse 27, to paraphrase. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. A few years ago, we were here on a Sunday night. I lose track of time. This was several years ago. and We were hosting an event called Married People Night Out. And upon uh, finishing up that night, someone ran in and they told us, they said, hey, there's been a terrible, terrible traffic accident right literally at the entrance of our church. And so some of our staff went out there to find uh, what in fact was a horrible, horrible scene. The impact was so great that both parties involved in that were killed instantly. It was a terrible scene. Both of them lost their lives that night. And if that were not tragic enough, the lady who was killed immediately upon impact they hit going what we think was probably 80 miles an hour is what the police told us she was being followed by her fiance literally in the car behind her he witnessed the entire thing because he was right behind her he jumps out of his car he ran up to her car and so until the first responders could get here he's just literally standing at her door of her car with his hands on the door screaming over and over and over and by the time that we got out there, he was literally on his back on the ground. And all he could say over and over was, oh God, oh God, oh God, over and over. Now hear me this, this morning. His ability to, inter- to articulate anything else other than oh God did not dampen the effectiveness and the sincerity of his praying. That in those moments, he didn't know what to pray. And so we look to this truth and say, hey, in those moments when all you can do is cry out, here's the good news. God, through the Spirit, is praying on your behalf. And I would argue that to this day, in hearing him say that over and over, it is probably the single most sincere prayer I've ever heard offered in my life. And I've been to a couple prayer meetings over the years. He was too weakened by his suffering to pray anything else. And maybe you've been there. 
Maybe you've not literally walked up on a tragedy like that, but you've had seasons where suffering is so great or so prolonged that you think, I can't even form my thoughts to pray, and and what's wrong with me? Why am I so weak? I thought I was stronger than this. Listen, here's some good news this morning when we read this passage. God does not condemn our weakness. He comes alongside of it. He says, hey, in your weakness, I'm not looking at you and going, what's wrong with you? Get it together. Don't you have any faith? He says, no, no. In your weakness, he says, not only am I not condemning you, he says, I'm coming alongside of you. He says, therefore, likewise, when you are weak, he says, I'm going to come alongside of you. And when you're so weak that you can't even pray, the Spirit is going to pray on your behalf. Now, here's something that's countercultural. There are things in our culture that we look at and say, man, that's attractive, right? Like me, praise God. That the world looks at and says, man, that's a power, success, or talent, or gifting, or whatever the case is, that in fact have no value in the economy of God. Kingdom living is upside down living is the whole focus of the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what has value in the economy of God that has no value in culture. Here's the interesting thing. God is attracted to weakness. He doesn't condemn it here. He says, hey, I'm drawn to it because in your weakness, then I can show myself strong. Not only am I not condemning you, I'm sending the spirit who dwells inside of you to intercede on your behalf when you're too weak to pray. He responds to the spirit praying on our behalf. Among all the challenges of suffering, there are two very strong and disturbing thoughts that can assault the believer. Listen, if you wrestle with suffering, you've had these thoughts. And if you're saying, well, I've I've never had any suffering in my life, listen, you just haven't lived long enough. And the two thoughts that haunt us when suffering is really bad and certainly when it's it's prolonged, thought number one is this, I am alone in my struggle. And what we've learned in verse 18 through 25 is, no, in fact, God has not abandoned you. God is moving towards you. God is using that suffering to perfect you and make you just like his son, Jesus Christ. But thought number one is, I'm totally number one uh, alone. And thought number two that haunts us is, God's not answering my prayers. You know what verse 26 and verse 27 promises you? You think, well, how in the world can God answer prayer when I'm so weak with suffering that I can't even offer them up? He says, hey, I'm not condemning that. I'm coming alongside that because when you get to that place, the Spirit will intercede for you. And so even in your weakened state where all you can do is offer groans and sighs, here's the good news of this passage. Your prayers are still being answered. Praise God. We tend to look at well-known people in the Bible and view them as superheroes, don't we? But when you study the pages of Scripture, what you learn is every one of them were frail. For example, just the one encounter with Elijah, the great prophet. Listen, you couldn't be a coward and be a prophet, right? Could you imagine every time, like you you got people together and you preach a sermon and every single person who heard it walks out and said, that was terrible and I hate you. I've had a couple of those, but not a lot, all right? That's the ministry of the prophets. And the only thing that motivated them was not not the good response, not a crowd gathering, right? The only thing that motivated them was obedience to God. So Elijah was courageous. 
And we learn the story of Elijah when he stares down the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. The odds were 850 to 1. And he says, hey, not only will I call down fire, you can fill this whole thing up with water. It doesn't matter. And the Bible says the fire fell from heaven. It licked up the water. And he stood courageous. And guess what? Right on the other side of this incredible spiritual victory, if we keep reading his story, we find him totally depressed to the point where he says, God, take my life. Now, if that's not human frailty, I don't know what is. The great missionary Hudson Taylor said this. He said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with him. That's the truth of verse 26. He says, you're not doing something great because you're so strong. He says, as a matter of fact, the great things that happen is that when you're not strong, God is interceding on your behalf through the Holy Spirit. So here's the good news. Even when you're so weak you cannot pray, your prayers are still being heard. Now, maybe you've been in a season where you say, hey, I'm, I'm not that weak, where I can't even offer up prayer, but I am weak to the point where I'm, I can't get my thoughts together, I feel a little disoriented in my prayer life, that I'm not even sure how to pray. And so what does he say in verse 26? He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us. What does that mean? The Greek word here, helps, is only used one other time in Scripture. Luke chapter 10, this passage where Mary and Martha have Jesus in their home and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha can be heard clanging pots together in the kitchen and stressing out over being a good host. She becomes irritated that she's doing all the work and her sister is just sitting there and so she says, Lord, make her help me. Right? And some of you are like, she did the right thing, Right? <laughs> You're like, I've got a sibling like that, terribly frustrating. She did the right thing. Jesus said, no, no, no. Mary chose the better choice, but she cries out, Lord, help me. That word help is the same Greek word as we find here in verse 26 about the Spirit helping us. And what the word literally means in the Greek is this, is to bear a burden along with. And so what's he saying? He's saying, hey, even if you can't pray, your prayers are still being heard because the Spirit prays on your behalf when all you can offer up is utterances and groans. And not only that, he says when you don't know what to pray, the Spirit picks up that burden on your behalf and lifts it up to God. That's what it practically means that the Spirit helps us in that. Now, little side note here, all right? So if you're listening, say amen. Sometimes verse 26 is used to justify speaking in tongues. All right? How many of you are like, it's getting ready to get weird? Anybody just think, like, what's going to happen now? I'm not going to get weird, but I do want to know, is there an interpreter in the room? Is there? No, I'm totally kidding. And so sometimes people say, hey, that, that's speaking in tongues. You can all, you know, it's groans and utterances, those kinds of things. Listen, uh, that is not what this passage is teaching. So let me just put this to bed really quick. Uh, here's why I know that. Number one, I, I just walked you through an entire overview of Romans chapter 8 at the beginning, Right? And so one of the keys to right interpretation is understanding the context. When I walked you through all of Romans chapter 8, was there any mention whatsoever of spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 8? No. Spiritual gifts are listed in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. They're not mentioned here in Romans chapter 8. So contextually, that is nothing about spiritual gifts. And the other thing is this. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12 that not every believer has all the gifts. 
But when he's describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit here in chapter 8, he's saying this ministry is available to every single person. So that's not what this is talking about at all. And you say, well, listen, it's good to know that, hey, when I can't pray, the Spirit prays on my behalf. God doesn't condemn my weakness. He comes alongside of it. But I don't even know what to pray. Well, guess what? Here's some good news about that. Even when those moments when you just say, I've prayed and I've prayed and I no longer even know what to pray anymore. Have you ever been there? I was there literally this week. I was driving home, was praying for someone in our church, and I just was praying and praying. And finally, I just got to the point where I said, Lord, I I don't even know what else to pray anymore in light of what this person's walking through. Well, guess what? There's good news and hope for that as well. Go back to verse 27. Because when you're you're able to pray, so I I can pray, but... But maybe I'm not praying the right thing, right? How do do I know when the Spirit's interceding that it's the right thing to pray for? Because look at verse 27. Here's what it says. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Here it is. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so what's the Spirit praying? He's saying, hey... I'm praying in line with the will of God in line of the suffering that you're going towards. And how do I know what the will of God is in suffering? Because the end game, verse 30, which is why I started off there so you can understand how we get there. He says the end game is your glorification. And so what the Spirit is praying on our behalf, he's saying, Lord, I'm praying in accordance with your will. And what's in accordance with your will is this person will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so what the Spirit's praying on your behalf is saying, Lord, use all this suffering, all this weakness to turn them towards you so that you can transform them through the process of suffering. And when they're not suffering well, Lord, I'm interceding on their behalf. Not only are your prayers heard, they are answered. Praise God. And think about that. The times I need to pray the most. I'm either too weak to pray, says, it's okay. Spirit's praying on your behalf, verse 26. Or I'm too disoriented to pray the right thing. It's okay. The Spirit's praying the exact will of God for your life, verse 27. New Living Translation words, verse 27 this way. The Spirit is praying in harmony with God's own will. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Super important. And so remember I told you the very beginning, and here's why I start off at the very beginning, that the ultimate purpose of God is glorification, that you would become just like Jesus Christ finally and fully on that last day in eternity. And so what you understand is that that's what the Spirit's interceding, so that work is still going on even when you're too weak for it to happen. He says not only is the Spirit interceding, he's praying exactly what should happen on behalf of you, which is glorification. So what precedes that is sanctification. And that's all the truth that leads us up to what may be one of the most repeated and encouraging and comforting verses in all the Bible, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so it's against all that backdrop that verse 28 is dropped down in there. And that's how you have to understand that, all right? So here's what he's saying. He's saying sanctification is the process of being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, and glorification is the completion of that process. 
And that's where he drops in verse 28. Now, two incredible things about this verse, all right? Two very important things. Number one, this is not a promise for everyone. And so if you know someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ, you just said, hey, the Bible says don't fret. This is going to work out for good. Verse 28 is not a promise for everyone. He says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And by the way, that's an accurate description of a true follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, a true Christian is not a person who doesn't want to go to hell. A true Christian is a person who loves God, and that's not semantics. And so number one, we know this is a promise only for those who are in Jesus Christ. And then secondly, when he says everything's going to work out for good, all right? Look up here. Everybody look up here. He's not saying that everything's going to be orchestrated for events that you would describe as pleasant or pleasurable. I don't know what pleasant is, but you can imagine, right? I just spoke in tongues. Is there an interpreter? <laughs> That's not what he's saying, is it? Now, can we just be honest? That's what we wanted to say, am I right? But remember the context? This is a passage about suffering. This is a passage about how God uses suffering to accomplish his ultimate end goal to make us just like Jesus. And this is a passage saying, hey, that even when you don't do what you should do and suffer well so sanctification happens, God's so committed to your perfection in eternity that the Spirit will do what you're too weak to do. And so it's all in that backdrop is what he's saying. So what is it? Here's what verse 28 is saying. He's saying that every hard thing in suffering is being used by God for your spiritual progress to help you become more like Jesus Christ. That's what verse 28 means. It's not that all things work together for good. Oh, life was hard, and then I claimed that verse, and so all of a sudden life got really easy. He says, no, no, no. Here's what you can trust. That the will of God for your life is glorification, and in the meantime, God's going to use every single circumstance, especially the moments of suffering, to accomplish his perfecting work in you. So let me make this as simple as I can. When you're going through a hard season of suffering, you should not ask, is this pleasant? What you should ask is, is this profitable? And according to verse 28, it is a promise that it will in fact be profitable even if it's painful, praise God. You know what it doesn't say? Everything is good, does it? No, it says everything will be used for good. If you go to the doctor and get some kind of really tragic news, I'm not thankful for that. What's he say? Give thanks not for all things, in all things. He doesn't say that everything is good. He said everything works out for good. And so what does that mean? That means when life gets terribly hard, you can set back and with the promise of God, which every time God makes a promise, it's as sure as his character. And you can say, Lord, I don't even pretend to know how you're using this for my good, but by faith, I choose to run towards you by faith instead of away from you in bitterness. Believing that the character of God, believing that your ultimate goal is to make me just like Jesus, and according to verse 28, contextually, this is a part of the process. By faith, I'm running towards you. Think of a, like a cake. 
Isn't cake good? So good. It's not fattening. I eat it all the time, right? And if you just said, hey, we're having dessert, and I'm serving up vegetable oil. What? What are we having for dessert? Flour. What are we having for dessert? Raw eggs. Now, I have eaten some raw eggs before. That's why I'm like Rocky, right? <laughs> but <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. That was the Spirit of God interceding on my behalf. Right there. You saw it. I did that when I was younger. Like, I used to work out all the time. And I remember watching Rocky. Remember that? And he drinks those raw eggs. <laughs> and I did that one time. And like, what was it like? I said, I've never drank snot, but I bet it's a lot like that, right? That's <laughs> what it's like. Write that down. Very important. Very important. But here's the deal. Vanilla. Remember the first time you smelled vanilla? <laughs> You're like, that smells so good. I bet it tastes wonderful. It does not. And you take all these bitter ingredients and you mix them together. And individually, they're not good things, but mixed together and worked together and kneaded together. Guess what? It turns into something that's incredibly good. That's what he's saying about your suffering. Here's the promise. Those moments of hardship in and of themselves will not be pleasant, but mixed all together for the sole purpose of making you become exactly like Jesus Christ. God will work them into something beautiful. That's a promise of God so you can run towards him in faith instead of turning away from him in bitterness. Praise God. That's what he's writing. That's what he's saying. He's saying that God uses life's hardest moments for our ultimate good. The question is not, is it painful? Of course it is. The question is, is it profitable? And according to the promises of God, the answer is yes and amen. God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. If that's good news, would you just shout praise God on the count of three? One, two, three. Yeah. In the words of the great infomercial, but wait, there's more. Promise. (laughs) I'm out of time. Can I go over just a few minutes? Is that okay? Totally rhetorical because I'm going on, all right? (laughs) Promise number two in this passage. Promise number two is God has never lost anyone on the way to heaven. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, some of you read it and you go, ooh, predestination, election, scary, right? Like if you believe strongly in predestination, you're probably Presbyterian. If you're like, I'm totally against predestination, you're probably Pentecostal or Church of God background, right? If you have no idea what it means, the whole conversation makes you nervous, you're a Baptist. Welcome home, all right? (laughs) I'm just preaching God's truth this morning. It's just coming out. I don't know. So let me offer up two realities. Number one, predestined an election. Listen, it may make you uncomfortable. It's all over the Bible. You cannot rip it out of the Bible, all right? Number one. Number two, there is divine mystery, and there always will be with God's sovereignty and man's free will. The sovereignty of God is taught over and over and over again in Scripture, and the free will of man is taught where God says, hey, you've got the ability to make real choices with real consequences, both good and bad. I've been in ministry 20 years. I'm going to tell you a little secret. On the conversation about Calvinism, election, predestination, I've had that conversation with someone, and this is a round estimate, around 2.2 million times. 
And let me just tell you this. I don't always find it incredibly helpful. Here's why. Sometimes if we're not careful, we can get so bogged down in what is not clear that we get distracted from obeying what is clear. Here's what I mean by that. I don't understand how God is sovereign. He's going to do what he wants to do, but yet somehow the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I don't understand how that all works together, but guess what is clear? The Bible says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. That's clear. I don't understand how God's election work, when it says God foreknew, what does it mean that God knew who'd respond in faith? There's divine mystery about all of that. But listen, I don't have to understand what isn't clear about election to understand what is clear, which is to go forth and preach the gospel to every single creature. That's clear. I've watched people leave churches over the years because they were afraid someone was teaching Calvinism. And I asked them this, do you think that God, anybody can go to heaven? Absolutely. And so here's what I ask them. So who are you sharing Christ with if you actually believe that? And what I found out is they're functional Calvinists. Well, I like the idea of everybody going to save, uh, can get saved, but I just hope God didn't trust in me in the process. Right? And so there's mystery about all of these things here, but it doesn't change what practical obedience looks like. For 2,000 years, the church has been debating these issues of God's sovereignty and free will, and they're going to continue to debate those things over the years. But listen, it's a tangible reminder that God is infinite and cannot be fully comprehended by a finite mind, and that should not lead you to doubt or frustration. That should lead you to worship. You say, well, I have to be able to understand it all. Do you know what the Bible says this in Deuteronomy 29, 29? The secret things belong to the Lord. You know, the Bible actually says in Romans chapter 11, verses 30 down through verse 33, there are some things where God's thoughts are so much higher than your thoughts. In other words, let me paraphrase this. There are places where God's saying, hey, I'm not going to tell you the answer. And if I did, you probably wouldn't understand anyway. And so we look at these words, we say, how does that all work out? And what are those lines, parallel lines actually cross? I don't understand all of those things. But here's the good news. I don't have to to worship God. Matter of fact, those truths should lead me to, I can't comprehend it. People talk about, well, this is what God did in eternity past. Listen, God is infinite. You know what that means? God exists outside the realm of time and space. There is no such thing with God as eternity past. You're saying, I can't, it just blows my mind. Listen, that should motivate you to worship. He's bigger than you. He's better than you. He's got it all figured out. And according to this passage, that's not even the point of this. This passage is this. He says, hey, Everyone who's been justified will be promise of God, past tense, done deal, will be glorified. Not a single person will be lost on the way to heaven. And I can't figure it all out, but listen, I can still rejoice in that promise that everyone is going to make it home. Five Pentecostals in the room, the rest of you are Presbyterians, right? That's the point of this passage. You say, how do you know that? Because I read the verses. Go back to verse 30. Go back to verse 30. I promise we're almost done. Go back to verse 30. What's verse 30 say? He said, do you believe in predestination? I do. Look at verse 30. What does it say? And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Go back to verse 29. He uses predestination again. For those whom he foreknew, he also, here it is, listen to this, predestined. Predestined to what? 
Let the text speak for itself. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's why I started with verse 30, the end game. This is what God is going to accomplish. You say, I can't figure it all out. Listen, here's the thing that's clear. Everybody who runs to Jesus will make it home. You say, why is that important? Why is that important? How is that comforting? Because here's what I know. And then we're done. When suffering is really hard and it's prolonged, there'll be times you think, I can't even pray. Verse 26 says, Spirit will pray for you. There'll be times where you think, I don't even know what to pray. Verse 27 says, good news, the Spirit does. And if it's really hard and it goes on for a real long time, there'll be times you'll be tempted to think this, I'm not even saved. Clearly, clearly if I were, life wouldn't be so hard. You know what verse 29 and 30 is saying? Here's what it means. It's saying, hey, in those moments when you're unsure if you can even hold on to God, here's the good news. God is firmly holding on to you. And everyone who's been truly justified will be past tense glorified God's never lost a single person on the way to heaven not one your journey will end exactly where God promised it would and no matter how hard the suffering was in the meantime on that day it'll be worth it it'll be worth it would you bow your heads this morning Your head bowed this morning. I want to ask you two questions. Number one, the most important question anyone will ever ask you. Have you received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If the answer is no or I'm not sure, then listen. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And so today, would you confess your sins before God? Would you agree that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness? Would you confess you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, his payment for your sins was buried and rose the third day? And by faith today, would you turn from your sins and receive Jesus Christ for their forgiveness? Would you do that today? Would you accept Christ as your Savior? Many of you have already done that. But when we talk about suffering, it feels like I'm preaching to you this morning. And if you're here this morning and say, I'm walking through a season of suffering and there are times I'm struggling with doubt, doubt that God hears my prayers, doubt that I'm praying the right thing, doubt that I'm even a Christian, pray this week that if the suffering isn't removed, that these truths would comfort me this very week that I'm walking through. If that's you and I can just pray for you this morning as your pastor, would you just raise up here and say, hey, that's me, amen. Anybody else, amen, amen. Several of you, thank you for your honesty. Anybody else? I just want to pray for you. Father, I pray this week that you would help us to be so convinced by these truths that are so clear in Scripture that God, by faith, we would live out of them, declaring that they're true even when they don't feel true in our lives this week. By faith. 
And God, we're so grateful that when we're too weak to pray, or too disoriented to even know what to pray, you love us so much that you don't condemn us in our weakness. You come alongside us and the Spirit prays on our behalf. God, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for being a God who's attracted to weakness. May we only boast in your strength. And when we do, may Jesus Christ alone get all the glory. For it's in his powerful name we pray, because we can.